So when I was a, uh, when I was a kid, a teenager, there was a scavenger hunt that was called Bigger and Better. And, um, and the thought was that you could start with something really small, like a penny or something, and go knock on doors and ask if they had something bigger or better. So you would, you would go around and, and, and trade up, and, and you'd ultimately end up with something like an, like an ugly sweater or, a, or like a, a broken lawnmower or, or something like that. Um, and each team would go out for about an hour or something and see if you can come back with the best item. But there was always this urban legend about this kid in Nebraska or Iowa something who like traded up to a Porsche one day. And, and we, we longed to be that guy and, and figured out, but I only ended up with like a, a rusty aluminum gas tank or, or something like that. But the point of the game was to get something bigger and better. And we come to a place in our text this morning that isn't quite about being bigger or better as it is being harsher and more egregious. The text this morning is looking at Jesus' commands regarding the Mosaic law that says eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And at first glance, this Mosaic command can potentially seem very antiquated to us. I mean, really, um, after considering them for a moment, I think we will see them a bit differently. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, I will read us our text this morning. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful again for your word. Father, we delight to sit under it, Lord. And we pray, God, as the scriptures have been read several times today, and prayers have been prayed, and songs have been sung, we pray that your word would do what only your word can do that it would penetrate us, Lord, that it would go into the recesses of our hearts, Lord, that it would convict us of sin, and Father, it uh, likewise would comfort us and would challenge us and empower us to be holy even as you are holy. We're grateful, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, the main idea of this sermon is that Christians need to be restrained from vengeance and pushed to otherness. Christians need to be restrained from vengeance and pushed to otherness. And we're going to look at that in three points. Number one is the need for restraint. Number two is the problem of vengeance. And number three is the challenge of otherness. The need for restraint, the problem of vengeance, and the challenge of otherness. So this morning we come to our last set of You Have Heard It Said's. And by the end of today, Jesus will have given us six different 
commands. And these six commands, I take, he considers to be vital to the life of the Christian and vital to the life of the Christian community, the church. Now, this principle that we have here, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it comes to us from Exodus chapter 21. And this is what's known as uh, the law of retribution, or in the Latin, lex talionis. And it means eye for an eye. And at first, it may seem, as I said earlier, that this rule may seem a little bit old-fashioned, or out of school, or out to date, potentially. But first, I think it's necessary for us to think about this, this uh, age-old uh, command here in two different ways. First, this law in the ancient world, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, was absolutely revolutionary in the ancient world. Because what this law did is it totally leveled the playing field. It totally leveled the playing field. Look, in the, in the ancient world, if you, were, if you were a rich man or a king, say, and, and you killed a, a poor man's uh, cow or something, then it would, it, would be a, it would be a small matter. It wouldn't be a big deal. You know, there would be, there would be a disparity of justice there. But if the tables were turned and you were a poor man, you were a beggar, and you killed the king's cow, a man, he would have your head. The level of justice was radically unjust. And so this law here was actually radically progressive in its day. This law saw the massive dignity and worth in every single human being. It protected the rights of everyone. This law said that a slave is equally entitled to the protection of law as the richest man in the land. So this law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in the ancient world was absolutely progressive. It was radical in nature. It leveled the playing field. It said that one is not more important than the other. That justice needs to be exacted. That just because of your status or your position in life doesn't mean you have therefore the right to exact more justice than is due. And then if you're a poor man or if you're one that has little or no rights in the land, you are likewise protected. And our systems of jurisprudence today are largely founded on this great principle. But the second reason that this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is important is because contained within this command is a principle that the New Testament is constantly driving at. There is one main difference between a Christian and a religious person. A Christian understands the inwardness of sin. A Christian understands the inwardness of sin. Just a few verses back and a few weeks ago, our brother Severin preached to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 and, and following, where we read this, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is saying in Matthew five twenty one, that there is little to no difference between murder and an insult. He's saying in some degree that it's all relative. Or in this text, why is there such a need to be restrained? Why is it necessary for the Mosaic law to contain with it the law of the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Because the Bible is always commanding to our weakness. The Bible never, or rarely, if I can think of any place, commands to our strength. (laughs) There's a place where Paul says no one ever hated his own body but loves it. 
The point is you don't need to tell a man to love himself. The Bible instead speaks to our weakness. And there's a massive tendency in our hearts to not exact justice, but rather to make the other person really feel it, to really hurt. We, in our hearts, always want to go beyond simply eye for an eye because we need restraint. And a Christian understands this. A Christian knows that the difference between them and a non-Christian isn't a qualitative difference, but it's a quantitative difference. You know, if you held in your hand an acorn, the entire tree that will soon blossom and become large and spread its branches and leaves and so on is contained within that one tiny acorn. In a sense, I think you could say the entire forest has the potential to sprout from that one very acorn. The entire forest is actually in the one tiny acorn. And the difference, my friends, between you and an evil person is not a qualitative difference. It's a quantitative difference. Our desire to exact revenge, a slow-burning anger within us, a distaste for other people. These things grow in our hearts, and a Christian knows that apart from the work of God, they are no different than anyone else. That the acorn of evil lies within every human being. A Christian is someone who sees their own sin ruining human flourishing. A Christian sees the radical pervasiveness of sin in their own hearts. They see their need for restraint. The scriptures are constantly commanding to our weakness. There was a famous... There's a famous quote in a G.K. Chesterton novel. Uh, It's a detective novel. And the the, the novel has this character named Father Brown. And Father Brown has this penchant for for solving these these mysteries. Uh, And there's one place uh, where where the author um, kind of gives us the reason, his ability to solve all these crimes. And he says something that's quite referential. This is Father Brown talking about his ability to solve these kinds of crimes. He says... No man's really good till he knows how bad he is or might be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals. As if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient people. Till he squeezed out of his soul the last drop of oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe under this insane, under his own hat. The Chesterton is saying that no man is good until he knows how bad, till how wicked, till how evil he actually is. And Father Brown knows how to solve these crimes because he knows the wickedness of his own heart. He knows the potential of his own heart. And why is this so massively important to us? Because, my friends, unless we see that the seeds of the worst sin reside in us, then we will never be able to truly embrace the radical love of God for us through Jesus Christ. And to the degree that we continue to see the depths of our fallenness, we will experience the great love that the Lord Jesus has for us in the gospel. I've been walking with Jesus for about 15 years now, and I still see the recesses of my heart that make me cower. I see my own potential for sin. 
I see the the things that I think about other people, the things that I'm able to actually still do, areas of pride, hatred, self-justification. And unless we understand the radical nature of the gospel, the radical nature of the gospel is that when we were enemies of God, that's when Jesus Christ came for us, loved us, and died for us. And as we progress through the Christian life together, be it 15 years or 20 years or 50 years or 60 years or 100 years till the Lord tarries, we will continue to experience the radical pervasiveness of our own hearts. And as they're being renewed by God through the power of the Spirit, through the new birth, and experiencing the gospel, my friends, it'll truly empower us towards the path of actually loving our neighbor. Until we see that our neighbor is just like us, we will want to exact justice on them, and we won't have compassion. So that's our first point. We need restraint. Let's look at a few of the examples that Jesus gives us here. The second point is the problem of vengeance, and this is primarily verses 38 to 42. 38 to 42. Now some will look at this text and think that Jesus is telling us to let people walk all over us, to not be concerned with justice. But that's not the teaching of Jesus, or it's not the teaching of Paul or the New Testament. You remember that even, even Paul invoked his own rights as a Roman citizen in Acts twenty-two twenty-five, when he said this. He said, but when they had stretched out whips for him, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by him, is it lawful for you to flog a man? who was a Roman citizen and uncondemned, that kind of took everybody back a bit for a moment there. Paul pulled that one out right at the right time. But a concern for justice, a concern for the poor, a concern for the marginalized, for the widow and the orphan, this is at the heart of the Christian life. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. Further, I think it's helpful to see that Matthew chapter 18 helps to give us categories to nuance Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 18 gives us nuancing categories to understand this text. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If your brother sins, go tell him between just you two. Don't you see the principle in Matthew 18 is nuancing the principle in Matthew 5. Because the principle in Matthew 18 is always for the sake of the other person. It's never to exact justice. The purpose of Matthew 18 is always for the sake of the other person. Not to exact justice or revenge. I would suggest to us that if you're angry or bitter or frustrated, then you are not in a place to confront someone in the spirit of Matthew 18. Even further as a church... If we are bitter or frustrated or angry, then we are not in a place to exact church discipline on someone. Only when we are not harboring a grudge or harboring bitterness or frustration or licking our wounds will we be able to actually practice Matthew 18 correctly. Because the principle of Matthew 18 is always that it is for their sake and not yours. It is for their sake and not yours. And we need to, and you need to deal with your own bitterness through the gospel first. Not deal with it through another person. So what is this text talking about? 
This text is talking about laying down your perceived rights in personal grievances. Laying down your perceived rights in personal grievances. Look, it says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And the way that it's, well, before I say that, to slap someone on the cheek is not um, some kind of act of, uh, like somebody's trying to kill you or something, okay? A slap on the cheek is simply, it's an insult. And the way that the text reads, it's almost as if someone with the back of their right hand has smacked someone on the right cheek. It's an insult. This person is dishonoring you. This person is speaking ill of you. This person is taking from you a certain kind of uh, glory. This person is shaming you. This person is backhand slapping you saying, you fool. You're a moron. You don't get it. You don't understand. And what Jesus is saying is that when someone insults you, there must not be any desire in us to save any face. There must not be anything in us to claim our own reputation or status. But that's not how we react. That's not how I react. I react with, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what people think about you? It's a desire to save honor. It's a desire to save face. My friends, this is so challenging. (laughs) It is one of the most challenging things there are that Jesus gives us in these commands. As we're reading through the commentaries, the commentators, when you get to these commands, I mean, as much as Jesus has said so far about forgiveness and as much as he has said so far about adultery and lust and divorce and so on, they say, this is the pinnacle, okay? This is the top of the mountain. This is the command that really would have shaken everyone up. To not exact revenge when someone has personally assaulted you. When someone has assaulted your character, when someone has said that you don't cut it, when someone has said that you don't measure up as you ought, someone says you don't do your job right, the insult, the honor taking, the shame that comes. The other example here is someone that wants to take your tunic. He says, give him your cloak also. Now, your tunic, most people in the ancient world wore two garments. So your tunic was your, was your undergarment, and your cloak was your coat. So in a sense, he's saying, <laughs> if they want your underwear, give them your shirt too. And the overcoat, the overcoat was the thing that kept those that were particularly maybe more poor, that kept them warm at night. And Jesus is saying, just give it to them. Just give it to them. The other example, he says, if someone wants to go with you one mile, go with him too. This was the right of a Roman soldier. It was the right of a Roman soldier to have someone carry their armor for one mile, but no further. They could say to someone, you need to carry my armor, you need to carry my gear, and you need to go with me one mile. And Jesus is saying, go with them too. Lay down your own honor. Lay down your own rights. Imagine that scene for a moment. I mean, you're going about your day. You're going about your regular business, and someone who has a higher status than you is a Roman soldier, and he says to you, you need to stop whatever you're doing right now, and you need to carry my stuff for me for a mile. It's demeaning. It's shameful. And Jesus is saying, don't take up your own rights with personal grievances. The point that Jesus is making for us here is he's saying a Christian must take any and all pains necessary to preserve the relationship. 
any and all pains necessary to preserve the relationship. Jesus is saying, don't insult when slapped, verbally or otherwise. Don't let a grudge allow you to shut the door on the relationship. That's what verse 42 means, the fourth example. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As much as it depends on you, you're the one, we're the one, that bear the brunt of the insult. Not taking pains to exact justice back on someone else. And then, my friends, when we understand the principle in Matthew chapter 5, are we then enabled to actually serve our brother and sister with the principle in Matthew chapter 18? You know, this is so challenging. It's so challenging for me. I think the way that it, that it comes out in my own heart is to want to see other people fail. To want to see other people fail. People that have said ill things about me or the church and leave and go do their own thing, this subtle desire within me to be justified in our actions. To see someone else, I think to myself, if that person fails at their endeavor, then I will be justified in the decision that was made. It's so wicked. It's so wicked. It's particularly challenging when it happens to you. When you fail, and you see someone else kind of licking their lips, saying, I'm now justified in my decision. My judgments about this person were correct. The way I insulted them is now justified because I'm right because they're failing in their endeavor. And Jesus is saying, that must be eradicated from the Christian community. That must not be the way among you. The non-Christian says, never again, I will never let you do that to me again. But Jesus is calling us to a standard that is impeccably high, where we say, look, I know what you did to me was wrong, and I'm not going to fight for my own rights here. I'm not going to seek to regain my honor here, and any time you want to be friends again, I'm ready. The principle is that the Christian never seeks their own honor and always leaves the door open for reconciliation. My friends, this, as we were talking about this joint service together and thinking about what text I should preach to us as two congregations potentially coming one, I just realized that the text we were coming to uh, within our normal preaching program, very appropriately address the issues that we're going to be facing. As two churches that come together as one, we need to remember that this text here is not speaking to isolated individuals. The Sermon on the Mount is given to a community of people. And if the Bible is always speaking to our weakness, then we ought not be surprised when we are offended by each other in the next several weeks the next several months, or even the next few years. Look, it's simply going to happen. It's just going to happen. If the Bible commands to our weakness, then this has got to be one of our weaknesses. We ought not be surprised when we actually are offended at some turn. When our rights, when our reputation, when what we thought was going to happen, or so on and so forth, is missed, is slighted, our preferences seem to be swept under under the rug, and so on. But the radical ethic that Jesus gives us here is to learn to suffer patiently and to be a radically countercultural community. 
I mean, the songs that we sang this morning were, it's almost as if we could just sing the songs again, and they almost preached the sermon for me. I mean, that last song, that when we learn to live with one another, then the world will know that the Father has sent the Son in the unity of the Spirit. When we learn to lay down our own preferences for one another, we don't hold on to our own rights. We don't seek to insult back when insulted. And the watching world says that is absolutely radically different than anything else. And that's what the church is supposed to be. A church is supposed to be a radically, wholly different kind of community. A community where people don't lick their wounds. A people where people don't exact judgment and justice back. But a people where the love of God has so pervaded their hearts that they lay down their own preferences. Lay down their own desires. Don't allow being slighted to make you leave the church. It's so easy. We live in such a transient culture. It is so stinking easy to just move on and go down the road. It just is. It happens in everything. We, can un- we unfriend people that don't like us on Facebook. We stop following people on Instagram that bother us. We leave jobs because we don't like what people say to us. We leave churches because leaders don't say what we want them to say. Or people offend us or so on. And it's so pervasive in our culture. Our highest aim as one new local church is to learn to love and know one another. That is going to be our highest aim as one new local church. To love and know and embrace and prefer and care for and bear with and forgive one another. That's what it is. And my friends, as a new church, the word church in the New Testament doesn't mean a building. Church means a gathered people of God. That's what the word means. So anytime we gather, whether that be here, whether that be Ron Russell, whether that be a park, but we gather in the name of the Lord and we are gathering as a church. Because of this preeminent need for us to become one people, I suggest that we need to merge sooner than later. This holding off for longer doesn't seem to be potentially fruitful for us, which is why the elders from both churches have encouraged us to make this decision on June 25th. Rather than waiting till the end of the summer, it seems that if we make this decision, we lock arms together, we get in the boat together, there's an opportunity for us to actually be the church to one another, to actually be this radical community that Jesus is calling us to be to be the kind of people that the world around us in this neighborhood and in our neighborhoods don't understand. Because they don't understand, how can this younger church want to pair with this older church with these older people? It's, it's, it's incongruent in their thinking. It's incongruent in their mind. But it's the way of Jesus. And it's the way of the New Testament. Second, the elders from both of the churches I've suggested that when we come together after June 25th, that instead of spending the summer here at Lentz Baptist Church at this building, that we spend two months at Ron Russell Middle School. And the purpose for that would be to simply focus on getting to know one another, to loving one another. Rather than focusing on the needs of this facility in the months of July and August, it seems more prudent to us to spend the time at Ron Russell Middle School where the, 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 the meeting house is just not... Um, the issue for us for a season. 
And then we can spend July and August objectively looking at, okay, what does God have next for us? Because as the gathering church, this is what we know. We know that we've been praying for a building for five years, and it seems that the Lord is giving it to us through you. That's amazing. And we're grateful to God for that. We're grateful to God that he's answering our prayer. He's answering our prayer through the people and the members and the faithfulness of Lent's Baptist Church. And now we know as elders and leaders that the task before us is to figure out how do we now move forward in the next season of fruitfulness. How do we best use this facility for the kingdom's sake, for his glory, for the good of the people around us? And it seems wise and prudent to spend the months of July and August at Ron Russell Middle School rather than here. As I was talking to James about it, he suggested to me that I could make a little joke about uh, how the fact that Ron Russell Middle School has um, air conditioning. (laughs) Well, I leaned over to my wife about 15 minutes ago and I said, well, I guess an hour ago, and said, does Ron Russell Middle School have air conditioning? And she's like, no, it doesn't. (laughs) So that can't be one of the selling points. (laughs) I also know that when Brandon came in this morning, he said, hey, Sev, can someone turn on the AC? (laughs) There they are. (laughs) Rather, the best way we can focus this summer is on our relationships. So that's the second point. The second point is the problem of vengeance. And I'll lead us to our third point which is the challenge of otherness. The challenge of otherness. But I say to you, this is now 43 to 48. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I I know that some of you could potentially hear this text and this command from the Lord and say, wow, how impractical can you be? How impractical is it to continue to forgive people and let them to continue to walk all over you. But a Christian says, why do I think of myself as so important? You know, there's a tendency. Some of us spend our lives sort of spinning ourselves into a cocoon of our own making. We spend our lives closing ourselves off from relationships, isolating ourselves, keeping ourselves from ever being hurt again, not wanting to forgive people, saying, you did this once and never again will I let you do that to me. And so we isolate ourselves. We build walls around our lives. Listen to C.S. Lewis, a quote that we've read many times, but it's so powerful. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you, want to keep, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, that safe, dark, motionless, airless casket, your heart will change. No, it won't become broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. My friends, it's impractical to not turn the other cheek and to love because of what it actually does to you. To isolate ourselves, to build walls around ourselves, To prevent ourselves from being hurt and wronged and mistreated is not the path to our heart truly flourishing. 
our challenge is to embrace others. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, the principle is obvious. We are drawn to love those who love us. We are drawn to love those who like us. But what reward is there in that? Jesus is saying. He says, of course you love people who like you. Who doesn't love people who like them? Who doesn't love people who say nice things about you and, 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 like the, and think you're funny and, and, and think the things that you have to say are in, interesting and, and, and so on? Who doesn't like that? You know, my friends, there, I read this sociology report this week, and they're coming out all the time. But this one was, again, on social media. And how social media is creating a context where we can constantly create an image of ourselves in our own making. We can constantly create an image of ourselves in our own making. And it's rapidly changing the way that we actually interact with other people. It's making us to be people who only interact with people who like us, who are like us. We can so quickly throw up images on Facebook or Instagram of a party or of a hike or of a casual afternoon. And all along we simply create this facade of reality that isn't really our lives. That's not really what our lives actually consist of and exist of. But we create this facade, and then people like it, and then we like what they like. But there's no actual depth to the relationship. And further, we're creating an image of ourselves that doesn't actually exist. And we're allowing our egos to be stroked by people that say that they like us, and they like us, and they like us. But what reward is it to be liked by people who already are like you? There's no embracing of the other. Sociologists are noting that social media is creating, is not creating the problem in as much as it is the occasion for the problem to manifest. It's not creating the problem within the human heart in as much as it's allowing uh, what's already existing in the human heart to come out. The problem is that we are a narcissistic people by nature. That's the problem. We're a turned in, sin is is an inward curvature on the self. Instagram didn't make you a narcissist. Your father Adam made you a narcissist when he fell. But a Christian needs to learn to restrain their narcissism. To be one who's not simply inward focused, but focused on others. And my friend, this is our other big challenge as we come together as one local church. If the first challenge is for us to be just simply prepared to be offended and not retaliate, The second is going to be for us to embrace the other. Everyone likes people that are like them. (laughs) Everyone does. Even Christians. Everyone likes people that are like them. But Christians learn to embrace the stranger. Christians have learned to embrace the other. And that is, again, the beauty of a local church. The beauty of a local church is it is a group of people who otherwise would not be in relationship with each other. But because of the finished work of Jesus, those boundaries and those walls and those preconceived notions and that aspect of narcissism has come down and allows people to embrace one another. The church ought to be full of people that are not all like each other. People that... people that are simply different than we are. Our worth, my friends, our worth must be in the fact 
that Jesus Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. Friends, look at verse 48 as we come to a close here. And just remember that God never asks us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Verse 48 says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His perfection, the Father's perfection, the Father's love is that he does these things. He does not have a problem with exacting vengeance. He's perfect in his justice. He's perfect in the way that he approaches us. And second, he has absolutely embraced the other, the challenge of otherness. In Jesus Christ, God embraces all who come to him in faith and trust. There's a um, the play Hamilton. Uh, it's about Alexander Hamilton, and, and it's his, his rise from coming to the, from, uh, from the Caribbean as an immigrant and, and becoming uh, a man of, of war, the Revolutionary War, and, and, and being involved in, um, uh, in the Federalist Papers after the war and so on. And my family and I have been listening to, uh, to, the, to the musical. And there's this, <laughs> there's this funny song around halfway through the first act, and it's King George. And it's King George singing the song about how he's going to win the love back from the people. He, he's, he's angry, obviously, that the Revolutionary War is going. And so King George stands up and he sings this song. And there's a line where he says this. He says, you'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I will love you till my dying days. When you're gone, I'll go mad, so don't throw away this thing we had, because when push comes to shove, I'll kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. (laughs) My friends, that is not the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chris read this verse in his prayer. I'm going to read it to us again. Uh, Hebrew, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. My friends, he did not kill your friends and family to win your love back for him. He himself was crucified for your sake to win your love. He didn't exact vengeance after he was slapped by the Roman guards when he was blindfolded. He didn't seek vengeance when he was abandoned by his friends in the garden. He didn't seek the vengeance after being nailed to the cross when he could have called legions of angels. He embraced the other on the cross. He called out to the two thieves, He embraced us at the cross when he reconciled the world to himself. And for this, for this incredible act of restraint, he received the wrath of God. He suffered for your sake. My friends, take it into your hearts. Let it melt you. Let it mold you. Let it change you. Know that the Father has sent the Son in the unity of the Spirit because of his great love at which he loved you. And let it pervade our hearts and let us make us to become a local church and a people who are marked by the character of God that we might endeavor to even be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful 
of the great love with which you showed us. Our great example, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for his work. We pray that it would uh, produce fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.